So, uh, welcome to the sixth episode of Rain Talks. I'm Matthew, the executive director of uh, District FC here in Washington, D.C. My co-host is our director of marketing, Aishu, with us here today. Uh, and today we're going to talk to Nate Kish about the ins and outs of college recruiting, um, a little bit of academy talk, and a little bit of debunking some myths. Nate, how you doing? You're still on mute. Good. Thanks for having me, guys. Really looking forward to it. So uh, the other rain talks I've heard are, are pretty cool. So appreciate what you guys are doing. Yeah. Nate, do you want to introduce yourself? Give us a little bit of background where you're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, right now I work with DC United's U15 Youth Academy team. I'm the head coach uh, of the 15s. The last two years I've uh, been with the U19s and the U23s uh, as the head coach there. So this is my first year working with a younger age group, which uh, has been really fun and really rewarding just to kind of see both sides of, um, of the development spectrum, you know, so having a group that's just about to leave the academy and potentially, you know, taking the next steps in their career with either college or uh, professionally. And then uh, seeing a younger age group as well, which is kind of, you know, right in the middle of their development uh, and some of the guys with our academy for the first year. So uh, it's my entering into my fourth year with the uh, academy, um, you know, this year coming up. And then uh, before that, I was with FC Cincinnati the year they were in uh, first year of the club, the year they were in uh, the USL. And uh, I was working with a, a local youth club, Alliance Cincinnati Elite in Cincinnati, and just kind of doing some, some club work there uh, on the boys' side. And before that, kind of tracing backwards, I was with Baltimore Armor, uh, which is the, kind of the first year they were in the Development Academy, which was a, a fun year as well. And uh, before that, I was in the college game, which is kind of how this whole college placement thing came together, where, uh, you know, I'd worked at a few different uh, colleges you know, a couple of division one schools at Wake Forest and Ohio State as a volunteer assistant. And then before that, uh, four, four or five division three schools with Emory and Henry College, Catholic University, Capital University, Frostburg State, um, and just kind of bounced around a bit in the, in the college world. And then when I transitioned into the club world, I was kind of always the, the club contact to help the families and the players with recruiting and understanding the recruiting process. And all that experience kind of morphed into uh, Kish soccer placement where I help uh, players and families to navigate through the, the college soccer recruiting process. So this break has been uh, fun for, for that part of it where I've been able to connect with different clubs like District Rain FC and run some of these webinars where players, families, coaches have been able to ask questions and kind of uh, get a better understanding of the recruiting process. So hopefully that's, that's what we can do tonight as well. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so one of the one of the first questions we'll kind of like get it out of the way in the beginning is how has you know kind of COVID nineteen impacted college recruiting for the fall? Yeah, I think it's had a really big impact, you know, and I think a lot of folks are are um, are worried about their recruiting process and kind of what this break means for them, and you know how they're recruiting. Uh, is going to be affected personally. So, um, you know, I think the, the thing to remember is everybody's kind of in the same boat, you know, where everybody is not getting out and playing and everybody's been on this break. Uh, and it's not something you can control as a, as a player, you know. So uh, I've been kind of giving everybody the same advice of control what you can control, which is you can still control, you know, your the video that you, you obtain and the video that you try to cut from your games and your – uh, you know, your, your matches, so you can reach out to your coaches, you can, uh, you can edit that video, you can, you know, cut it and find the right clips and put it in a, in a editing software or send it off to somebody to edit if that's not a skill of yours. Um, and then you can also, uh, you know, you can work through the application process where it's actually applying to a school. Uh, you can work through the research process of looking at different uh, colleges and, and deciding if the college is for you or not, you know, how big is the school? How much does the school cost? What's the team roster like? 
Uh, what's the style of play like? You can watch games typically of most colleges and highlights on YouTube. You can also take virtual campus tours, you know, so that's something that even from your, your couch, you can see what a college campus looks like or what the uh, athletic facilities at a certain, uh, you know, for a certain soccer program are like, and you can get a better feel for if that college is something that, you know, you would want to, um, you know, look into and, and uh, explore more. So, uh, you know, the reality of it is, is this has had a big effect on the recruiting process, but um, the fact that you can't get out and you can't be seen at games, you have to do something to, to still continue your recruiting process. And I think the video is the best, the best solution there. Yeah, for sure. What, uh, what would you recommend for players that um, maybe, maybe they attended a, a high school and their high school didn't film their, their matches. So they don't have that kind of repertoire of, of film to, to cut and send in. Yeah, I, I think for the players that either have the video or don't, I think there's still a, you know, a really big piece there of just contacting coaches, you know, and, and just if you have the video and you have a link, you, you put it on YouTube or you have a Dropbox link, whatever it is, send that video out and uh, contact the coaches with that video. If you don't, you still should be contacting coaches and saying, hey, when this whole thing is over, I'm interested in your college. I'm interested in your soccer program. Can you come out and see me play? So that contact piece is a is a piece right now that uh, all these all these players still have control over. And what's important to remember for the players is that they they can never break a rule with that with the contact. The player can always reach out to the coach. It's always you know open for them. The coaches are the are the ones that are restricted. You know the coaches are the ones that have rules on them about when they can uh, reply, when they can come off campus to see you play, things like that. So right now the coaches are in a point where there's no off-campus recruiting, but there's no games being played. So uh, you can still reach out to the coaches. So I think if you don't have that video, it becomes even more important for you to really be good at contacting coaches and saying, hey, I'd like you to come out and see me play with District Rain FC. I'd like you to come out and see me play with, you know, uh, Sherwood High School, whatever it might be. So you have to really give them the information they need to get out to your games. You have to be almost double down on your contact. Which, which one would you feel is, is more important uh, in terms of like visibility? Is it that kind of constant communication? Like I've identified a school I want to play for, I'm going to talk to the coach once a week, um, or is it kind of sending that one really, really well edited film uh, and then kind of waiting for a response? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think there is one or the other. You know, I, I think you have to do, you have to really work hard to do both. I mean, even if you have the, the video, they're going to reach out to you and that's not going to be the end of the process. They're still going to want to know, are you interested? Can you come and visit? You know, when can we talk on the phone? Uh, so the, the communication is a massive piece and you have to be a really good communicator. So I think, you know, editing the video and sending that out and even if the highlights are good is just the beginning of the process for a lot of players. Um, but, I, so, you know, I think the communication piece is, probably more important in that aspect just because like you have to still be able to communicate with coaches and express your interest and answer emails and you know show how interested you are by being consistent with your communication it's also such a big life skill you know like the players and young young people today they just have to be able to communicate um you know to to make it in the world make to communicate with their future uh you know employers and, and teammates and coworkers and things like that so Mastering that communication process is a, is a big one. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Have you heard of any of the the schools that are considering not having like certain athletics in the fall? Because I know a lot of schools are, are cutting budgets, and you know sports might be the first thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a scary time, obviously. You know, and and you hate to see any athletics program get cut because it takes opportunities and um you know just just enjoyment away from uh college athletes and uh there's entertainment you know obviously associated with it so i i think that um it's just really unfortunate to even think about it you know i, I know a couple of programs have been cut already i know there was like a division two school in florida which i i forget the name of right now unfortunately on uh, cincinnati unfortunately cut their program in ohio division one school those are the only two that i've heard of for sure um, you know, I, 
I think it's one where a lot of athletic departments, like a lot of businesses right now and a lot of individuals are taking a look in the mirror about how to navigate this, this whole thing. So um, yeah. hopefully there's, there's no more that, that get cut, but those are the only two that I've heard of right now. And uh, I know the NCAA and um, the, a lot of men's soccer programs came together, kind of rallied together to protect soccer and make sure that uh, there was an awareness for how important soccer is and, you know, the role that it plays in this country for so many uh, young players and, you know, uh, college, college students that, that uh, that's a big part of their college experience. So uh, it was a really, it was really cool to see that push and see kind of soccer people come together to protect the sport. Um, So that's, that's the latest I've heard of that. Yeah, and it, it adds, even, even though there's that unity there, it, it adds another level of, of research, um, you know, because you don't want to apply it to the school that, you know, it is in danger, and it, it kind of compounds the, the communication piece. Yeah, and, and I don't know, um, you know, how you navigate that one, because obviously nobody's planning to uh, shut down, you know, or nobody's planning to uh cut a sport and I don't think anybody's going to actively have that out there like hey we're, we're considering cutting this our you know this this sport so watch out it's like you uh I think you have to look for athletic departments and soccer programs and universities that are strong you know that have uh good history and good tradition and uh you know I think a you know a big part of it too is just kind of um the during the communication is asking those questions to the coach like just you know, really being forward with that to say, I'm interested, but this is a concern of mine, obviously, during this time, how stable is the is the program, how stable is the university, and hopefully you get some honest, you know, answers and feedback there, but uh, it's a really tough one to navigate. Yeah. Aishu, do you have any, anything you want to jump in on? Well, my, my questions aren't really about, you know, the current pandemic, but I do have a question about in terms of requirements for playing in college, what, like, in, it could be academics, it could be your style of play, depending on the position. What are coaches looking for specifically in a player? Yeah, I think every coach is different there. Um, you know, I think some of the things that, that the majority of coaches are, the high majority of coaches are, are looking for are, are players that are well-rounded, that have you know, they can get it done academically, they can get it done, you know, on the field, uh, they're a model citizen, you know, on the campus community, and then the larger community of, you know, the city where the college is. Um, and, you know, I think everybody's looking for impactful players, players that are going to help the roster and, you know, help to win games and are going to come in and contribute, you know, in a positive way. But um, specifically, what every coach is looking for, I think every coach is, is different from their style of play and kind of what they're uh, what they're looking for there, um, you know how they how they want to play, what positions they need from year to year, um, and the reality of it is is like some colleges uh, they have to have like a certain GPA to to get in. So you know, a, a Ivy League school or like Harvard is going to be very different from like a uh, you know a, a school that you know has very low admission standards. So. Um, everywhere is different from, from that aspect. And I think, you know, SAT scores, ACT scores are, are always um, taken into, into account. And typically those are on a sliding scale. So like the higher your SAT, the more uh, leeway you might have with like a GPA and vice versa. Um, but it's just such a, there's so many colleges out there and there's so many different um, standards and, and acceptance, you know, uh, standards for, for what makes every college tick that it's a really difficult question to answer there. And there's so many different coaching personalities um, and, you know, standards on the field that it makes it a difficult question as well. It's a, it's a, a good answer to one of the, the broadest questions in the whole recruiting process, right? Because there are so many different personalities. And as a, as a young person, you know, 18 years old, you have to kind of identify where you're where you're going to fit best and then identify the colleges that you're going to fit best into as well um what's one way that you kind of facilitate those um those decisions yeah you know i I try to 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 help a a player 
uh, kind of create a list, you know, of, of what's most important to them. So, um, you know, if getting a scholarship is necessary, uh, you know, because financially that's the only way you can make college work, uh, then that's got to be a big piece for you, you know, then it might not make sense for you to look at a school that uh, has a very high price tag and they're not offering you an athletic scholarship or you're not going to qualify for, you know, an academic scholarship there. Um, you know, if being close to home is something that's important to you, then, you know, you have a, a certain amount of schools that are near you, you know, uh, and it doesn't make sense to look outside of a certain mile radius or whatever it might be. So uh, I think it's just kind of helping players and sometimes the families to uh, think about what they value most and then uh, create their list based on that. Like some players simply want to play division one soccer and, and that's it. And they're very, they're okay to, to let the other pieces of the puzzle go. Um, and, you know, they're not as, as high of a priority as simply playing at any division one school. Um, some players really want to play, you know, they, they want to go somewhere and they want to have an immediate impact on the field. They want to feel valued. Um, and that's something where you, you should be able to figure that out through the recruiting process of how, how much a coach calls you and what role they say they're, you're going to play on the field. So, um, you know, from there, I think once you have that list, you also have to make a list of the schools that, that, you know, have those components for you. So if A, B, C, and D are the most important factors, then, you know, then you also have to make a list of 10 to 15 schools that have those components for you. And then, you know, that should have you give you a, a good start to think about where you should then go and visit and where you should then go and uh, apply to and uh, who you should be in contact with from a, from a college coach perspective. Yeah. So it's kind of just like getting, getting the priorities straight on, yeah. on both sides. Yeah. It's a big one. You know, I think just knowing what your priorities are and then researching the schools that, that have those priorities for you that offer them. Yeah. Um, you mentioned scholarships. What, uh, what type of general scholarships are available to players? Yeah, you know, I think what's interesting is that I think a lot of players hear scholarship and they, they automatically think like, uh, I have to get a soccer specific scholarship, you know, I have to get a scholarship for my ability to play soccer. And mm -hmm. I think those are the scholarships that uh, there's the least of, you know, like there's, there's the least amount of uh, money available for you to go and play soccer. I think that the pot where there's the most money is for your academics, you know, and you know, how well you do academically and the value that you bring to a, a college, to the admissions department for, you know, the, the standard that you bring academically. So um, every college has a, has a certain standard of, of what they want the profile, what they want their, 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 uh, their students to look like. So, mm -hmm. you know, what's the, what are you going to be like on campus? Uh, you know, what, what value do you, do you provide to the university from an academic standpoint? So, uh, with that being said, it's, there's a big pot of money for, for that. So whatever the price tag is of a university, call it $30,000 per year. Um, typically nobody pays that, you know, there's always scholarships that are available. If you live in a certain County, you know, there's, there's scholarships available. If you're a minority, there's scholarships available. If you, uh, you know, have a sibling in college, there's money available for you. Uh, if you have, you know, good grades, there's money available for you. And then there's also uh, federal money available for you uh, based on basically your, your, your tax return and the, the income that your family makes. So uh, typically the way it works is that the more money you make, uh, the more money you should have available to pay for college. The less money you make, the more money the college or the, you know, the, the uh, you're going to get federally to be able to pay for college. So there's a lot of different pots that are, that are available. And I think the thing to remember is that how many players are interested in going to college and playing in college and how quickly those athletic scholarships disappear. So, yeah. um, you know, every division one school only has 10 full scholarships per year that they can give oh. out. So, you know, there's about 200 division one men's uh, teams. So 200 times 10 scholarships, you know, it's not that many. It's, uh, it's something where when, when you really break it down like that, when you're looking at 2,000 scholarships to be awarded and they can chop it up a little bit so they can give 
you know, like 20 players half scholarships if they'd like. Um, but also not every program is fully funded, you know, so uh, not every program has those 10 scholarships. So it's a, it's a really tricky process to navigate and it's, it's tough if you're only depending on an athletic scholarship to, to get money for college. Yeah. So you, you would recommend players to kind of, um, what's what I'm looking for, to kind of weave together other scholarships outside of just scholar or outside of just soccer and not rely totally on that playing, no matter how good you are, you can get money other places um, and, and get it uh, get it done like that. Yeah, absolutely. And the the the, co the college coaches and the admissions department will let you know you know what type of scholarships you can apply for. And I think what's important for players to remember and families to remember is that um, you know you never know how much money is out there and how much money is available to you and what type of scholarships are out there. So you should at least apply and visit campuses. Uh, and talk to your guidance counselors at your high school, uh, you know, and your teachers, because they can steer you in the right direction and tell you, you know, give you links or paper, you know, physical papers to uh, apply for different scholarships. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the very least, you're not going to get the scholarship, you, you know, and you're going to be in the same boat you were. But if you do get the scholarship, and you never know, it could be a life changing, you know, experience for you. You never know how much you might qualify for. So there's some fantastic scholarships out there. Uh, but the best thing you can do is to really focus on your, your academics and really, you know, f put your head down there to, to grind through that because you, you'd be surprised at how much money you can get off of uh, kind of that sticker price for an, for an annual tuition at a, at a college. So uh, there is some rules, too, about like some colleges won't allow you to receive athletic and uh, financial aid. So some every college is different there. And that's kind of what the admissions department helps you to navigate. Right. And D3 schools don't have athletic scholarships, correct? Correct. So Division three schools, you're, pre you're pretty much relying just on your uh, financial aid, you know, the academic side of things, the federal money uh, that you'll, you'll qualify for, and then, you know, any, any loans that you'd be willing to take out uh, mm -hmm. as well. But again, there's just so many scholarships out there that uh, mm -hmm. you never know how much money you can kind of chip away at that, that sticker price. It's, it's pretty incredible. So. Yeah, uh, my my sister got a random one for uh, just having red hair. I know, that, was, that was the only thing. It's like a hundred dollars. Yeah. It's and incredible. It just, you chip away at it because there are a lot of really random ones out there. It's like, have you been outside on a Tuesday? Here's some money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty incredible. And I think you know you can if you research it enough and you're willing to look at the internet and use your guidance counselors and talk to your coaches and talk to your teachers everybody has a scholarship that they know of. And then there's, there's scholarships specifically at each university, you know, so James Madison will offer a scholarship that Virginia doesn't and Maryland will offer a scholarship that, you know, UMBC doesn't. So everybody has these different scholarships. Um, so it's, uh, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. I can jump in real quick with a question. Uh, so yeah, you guys are talking a little bit about um, all these different ways to, you know, play in college for college athletics and things like that. But what are some of these like common myths that a lot of players sometimes have? And could you debunk some of them? Yeah, I mean, I think we can stick with the um, Division One, you know, theme there, right? Where it's like, everybody in college and everybody that plays division one uh, is on a full ride scholarship. It's like, you know, at the very most, you don't even have a starting 11 on full scholarships. You know, you have 10 people at any given time at the most that have a full ride scholarship. And it's just kind of like, uh, it's just, it's a, it's a really, um, I think miscommon thing where, uh, or sorry, common thing to think about, but it, it's, it's, it's just, it's not true where there's all this money for division one soccer. And, you know, that's uh, every player that's playing on a division one roster is, is getting their college paid for. It's not, as, there's not as much, as much money for, you know, soccer as there is for football and basketball, you know, you just don't have that same entertainment value on TV or those same, that same commitment from the university for scholarships where it's like, I think college football has like 50 scholarships, you know, per year. And it's like, you know, soccer has, has 10. So, uh, 
Um, I think on the women's side, there's a, there's a few more for every division. Um, but the scholarship one is a big myth. Uh, I think, you know, if you don't play well, you'll get your scholarship taken away right away. You know, that's illegal. That's a big myth. Um, basically, you know, your scholarship is a contract. It's, it's binding, you know, um, and every year can look different of that scholarship. So your freshman year, you might be on this much percent. Your sophomore year, you'd be on this percent. Um, and that's kind of determined kind of as you come in and it can fluctuate from year to year, but it can never be removed for, uh, you know, playing poorly or they can't just strip it from you on any given day. Um, kind of, I think another big, big myth is like how hard it can be to transfer. That's not true. You know, transferring out, if you feel like you're in a bad situation is actually, you know, pretty, pretty easy and you just kind of go into a, a transfer portal where everybody can see your contact information and you don't even have to talk to the, the coach if you don't want to you can go straight to the athletics department and there's a compliance office that can help you um you know I think the the myth too about like uh all you have to do is play well and somebody will see you play it's like you have to do a really good work hard at contacting coaches and creating a buzz and telling them you're interested in them to get them out to see you play. And, you know, basically just like we said, mastering that communication process and being really hungry with your communication to get that out there um, to, to really get coaches out to your games. I, I think being a good player, sometimes you can never be found, you know, like you have to really work hard to, to let people know that you're interested in their college and, and let them know who you are to make a name for yourself. Um, so those would be the big ones that really stick out to me. Um, there's a lot of foreign players that, that, that are interested in playing college soccer now, you know, so there's players from all over the world that are coming in uh, to, to play. And I think there's also a lot of uh, myths and rumors out there that uh, college coaches only want, only want foreign players. I think college coaches want good players that are going to impact the roster and impact the game and, be positive influences on campus. And if a player from France is better than a player from PG County, that's just how it is, you know? And if that coach has a pipeline to P to France right now where he's getting players consistently uh, and they're, you know, impacting his team better than the players that that coach is finding from PG County, he's probably going to stick with the French pipeline. You know, that's just, that's just how, how it, how it works. So. Uh, coaches want to be competitive. Coaches want to uh, win games and they don't want any headaches on and off the field. So they're going to find the best players wherever they're from. Right. Um, kind of a segue from there. Uh, you talked a little bit about people getting or coaches getting players from Europe. Uh, how different is like the, the academy culture of Europe compared to the soccer, like the academy and college culture here? Yeah, I think I think it's two different worlds, you know. I mean, I think uh, what you see in in most European countries, most most South American countries, you know, the reality is like the majority of the world is that soccer is the number one sport. Uh, it's everywhere on TV. It's everywhere on social media. There, it's it's on billboards. It's you know, families grow up going to games, and it's in their blood. It's it's in their culture. Here in America, it's like there's so many choices for for players. You grow up and you turn on ESPN and it's not always dominated by soccer. It, it rarely is, you know, mm -hmm. so you have LeBron James on there, you have, uh, you know, Kobe on there. It's like you have somebody new every day uh, from a different sport. And, um, you know, until soccer continues to grow in this country, uh, I don't know when that culture really changes. Uh, I think there's definitely like people who are passionate about the game, you know, and I think it's growing here and you have, people whose families have played it their whole life. I'm not saying that, but there's certainly other sports here that are more popular and you have baseball, football, basketball, lacrosse, hockey. Uh, there's just so many choices here uh, that it can, I think, be distracting for players where there's in other countries, it's like soccer is all you see. And if you play another sport, it's almost like the reverse where it's like, why are you playing basketball? Why are you playing baseball? It's, it's like odd in, in, a lot of other countries. So um, I think that that bleeds into the culture of the youth, you know, where 
um, you know, if you get selected to play for Barcelona's youth academy or, uh, you know, whatever, uh, Sao Paulo's youth academy in, in Brazil, it's like it's an honor and it is your, your path out of poverty or it is your path to reach your dream or whatever it might be. Whereas here, it's like a lot of players, you know, turn down playing for an MLS academy to go play in Europe or even to play for a local youth club. And that's, that's fine. Everybody has their own choices, but it just kind of shows you where the culture is here. We have a very young league. You know, our league has only been around since the mid-90s um, in, in terms of the MLS. Uh, you know, the U.S. missing out on uh, one of the last World Cup cycles, you know, it kind of – you don't get in front of as many fans and you don't have the opportunity to, to impact that culture. Uh, obviously what's happened on the women's side has been fantastic and they've, they've been dominant in world soccer. So I think you see what's happening on the, on the women's side. It's, it's much more influential and it's become a bigger part of uh, soccer culture here. So. Um, so we know that, that players coming from European countries uh, into American colleges typically have a few thousand more hours of development, right? So uh, an individual player coming from France might have closer to six or 7,000 hours by the time that they're 18, just at, in soccer development. Whereas an American might have maybe four, four to 5,000. So say that there's a French player and say I'm coming from PG County, how do I work uh, to kind of close those gaps and really, really stand out um, to, to a coach? Yeah. You know, I think it, it it's, it's kind of like the last question where, um, it's either in your culture and you, you love it and you have a passion for it or you don't, you know, and I think that's the big difference is that, uh, there's players who they just grow up with a ball on their foot and they have a love for it and they have a passion for the game and improving. And they have such a, a dream to make it, uh, that it just, it, they naturally, the ball never leaves their foot and they're, they're constantly improving. So I think um, there's players here who have that, you know, there's players who the ball never leaves their foot. They're going to, they're playing soccer in the backyard. They're playing street soccer. They don't need goals or organized teams to play. Um, so I think you're, you really need to own your own development. You know, every player needs to take control of their own development and realize that they don't need a coach to improve all the time. They don't need, you know, uh, jerseys and, you know, 22 players on the field to improve. It's like players need the desire to, to go out and kick a ball against the wall or work on their weaknesses or, you know, go and, you know, hit a hundred shots a day or whatever it might be that they, they need to work on. So I think it's that recognition that you don't always need what American soccer says you need to, to improve, which is, organization, structure, uh, referees, all these different components. Uh, you just need passion in a ball. And that's why it's the greatest sport in the world, right? You can go out and uh, you don't need a whole lot to, to improve. So, um, yeah, so I think closing that gap is, is, is knowing what, how far advanced some players are and seeing a 17-year-old player and seeing how skilled he is and saying, holy cow, I got some work to do and knowing what the standard is, you know, and then doing your best to, to close that gap on your own and then working really hard when you, when you are in a structured environment uh, because knowing how much that structured environment can do for you. Right. Um, to, to kind of jump on to the next thing, we're, we've got about 20 minutes to give or take left. Um, I know a lot of players don't uh, don't know the restrictions on coaches and when they can um, kind of start talking to them. Uh, could you could you go into a little bit of that? Yeah. So so the most restricted coaches are Division One coaches, and um, you know basically uh, they can't talk to you until the summer going into your junior year. They can't really like actively recruit you, tell you what they like about you, visit you off campus um invite you to campus you know for like an actual soccer visit um but so you're really only talking about two years of your career before college um before uh well you still have i guess my point is you still have 
two of two really important years, your junior and senior year that are wide open for college coaches to talk to you. You know, it's before that sophomore year and below where you are college coaches are restricted from really, you know, going after you. So uh, I think if you're a sophomore and you haven't been contacted yet, uh, the reality is, is you're like everybody else, you know, and your, your recruiting might be just around the corner for when you get to that summer leading into your junior year and things can really open up for you. Now, division three and division two and NAIA coaches, they have a whole different set of rules. Division three, there's almost no rules for, for contact. Like they can contact you at any time, you know, um, and it's a lot looser. Um, and division two is kind of like in between. So um, division one is the most restricted. And again, it's, it's only until you're the, the, the summer going into your junior year. So um, coaches can send you emails about camps. They can say, come and, come and attend our camp. Here's a little bit of info on the school. But it can't say, Matt, I really liked how you played. We want to invite you to, to campus. Uh, we want to offer you this scholarship. They can't get into that before your junior year. And just because the, the coach can't contact you, like we, we talked about in the beginning, doesn't mean that you can't, you know, kind of get yourself in front of them. Wide open, wide open. And I think when you contact a coach, a lot of times what ends up happening is that you get added to like a mailing list for their camps or, you know, the, then they say, well, who is this? You know, I've never heard of this kid. His video looks pretty good. As soon as he becomes a, you know, a junior, we can reach out to him. Or if they know coaches on your staff, you know, they might reach out to the coach and say, Hey, can you tell me more about this player? They just can't reach out to the player, you know, or, you know, if it's a local club, I get, I get contacts and, and texts a lot of times about local clubs, like kids that play for, Bethesda or Loudon or Baltimore Armor um, from other college coaches I know just because I'm in the area so they'll reach out to me and say do you know this this kid have you played against him um, and then you know we just try to give like an honest honest assessment so coaches are always using the network and you know their personal network and, and ways there's ways around that rule as well where you know they can reach out to somebody else and express the interest in the player before they're a junior as well so um there's there's some rules with that but they can always say they can they can dig up more information on the player you know yeah so something else that i feel like might be in the myth area is college id camps are they are they worth the time and the money yeah i i think anytime uh you get an opportunity to showcase yourself you know it's 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 worth your time and worth your money um I think you need to be honest though about where you are going to showcase yourself and the level that you can play at. So if you're a player who's going to struggle to play at Georgetown and you know, you, you haven't gone to see them play a game, so you don't know what the standard is, mm -hmm. then you probably shouldn't spend $250 to go to their ID camp because if the level is too high, even of the guys that are at the camp, you know, or if the coaches look at you and they say, yeah, I mean, he's just not good enough compared to what we have. He's a decent player, but he would never impact our, our, our program. Um, then it's a waste of money. You know, it's just the reality of it. So um, I think players and families have to have to really think about the reality out there and how competitive this is. And even the camps, there's players coming to these camps from all around the world too. You know, it, it's pretty impressive you know, the, the desire that there is to play college soccer. So, um, but a lot of coaches will tell you that they find players from their camps, you know, and players have gone on to play professionally and they were first found at college ID camps, you know, like the, the U S is so big that it's tough for these coaches to get everywhere and see these, see all the players. So a lot of times if a player has done his research and he has his heart set on a, on a college and he goes to that camp. If he's from California, his best way to get in front of an East coast team might be to, for him to spend the money, fly across the country, pay for the camp and, you know, get in front of the coach. So mm -hmm. the coach can't be everywhere. He, he has limited time. He's got to spend time with his family. They have limited recruiting budgets, so they can't go to every game. So, so sometimes you got to come to them, come to them with your video, or come to their camp. Mm -hmm.
thing. It's a really good point. Um, and then while you're at a camp or with your video, say I'm a say I'm a defender, right? How am I going to catch somebody's attention if I'm not involved in a lot of those like flashy plays or scoring goals, or if I'm a goalkeeper that doesn't have ridiculous saves because I've got a decent front line? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to rely, you have to believe that college coaches are going to do their job. College coaches have to fill every position on the field, you know, um, and they always need a, a goalkeeper and um it's their job to look at a goalkeeper and say well he's given up only five goals this year and then that coach has to go to the game and say well they've had the ball for 95 percent of the game and they're just pretty pretty darn good this year you know like they they're not going to lose the ball and they're not going to lose games and they're not going to give up too many shots so it's up to the coach and, and I think that might be a good uh opportunity to go and get in front of coaches at an ID camp where the environment is different you know mm -hmm um where uh they're not playing with that that team and they're going to be challenged and tested in in different ways you know and i think coaches are are they're going to do their homework so if they come out and they watch one game and the goalkeeper doesn't ever get tested then they're going to dig a little bit more with the with the coach and say i didn't see too much today tell me about this or maybe they'll come out to practice and they'll watch him out of practice or maybe they're going to target a specific game where they know it's going to be a more challenging game and they're going to get tested more, you know? Um, so there's a lot of different methods. I think that the coaches use to, uh, to really evaluate these players. And I think a lot of it too, is just researching and, and digging with the, the current, the, co the player's current coach and asking hard questions. Well, what's he like off the field? What's he like, you know, as a shot stopper, how is he? Is he consistent in the box? You know, how many goals does he miss? You know, stuff like that. So coaches ask really hard questions and they rely on the, the coaches to be, uh, be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So really, really good insight. Um, and I think players can get antsy because the, the process is so behind the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. And I think that's why this process is so difficult to navigate, you know, and, um, but players, again, they just have to control what they can control, which is, uh, you know, how hard they work on the field, the, their quality and their form on the field, the academic side, the research, uh, and trying to just kind of create your own interest, you know, like trying to create a buzz for yourself and expressing your interest to coaches and, if they bite, they bite. If they come out and watch you play, great. But if they don't, move on and find the next college. There's enough colleges in this country for you yeah. to uh, to find the right fit. Right. Yeah. Aishu, do you have any other questions? Um, I was going to say, let's open it up to the Q&A yeah. from attendees. And if we don't get any, get any immediately, I do have one question. Um, so if you're a transfer student looking to transfer to a different college, can you still get scholarships from the college you're looking to transfer to, like athletic scholarships, or is that a lot tougher? Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely um, more challenging just because you're coming in typically in the middle of a recruiting cycle, uh, typically you know, mid-year. Uh, and sometimes you even have to sit out a year uh, when you do transfer, but uh, reality is, is, is the, the picture changes every year for, for, college, for college coaches. And if they have this amount of scholarship money uh, available and it's all been dispersed and given to the players um, in any, you know, for, for that year, but then one player leaves, let's say he graduates early or he decides to go professionally or he transfers himself, then all of a sudden money opens up. So that money needs to be awarded. So, you know, if the coaches don't award the money, it doesn't get used, you know, and, you know, so the coaches always want to make sure that they uh, are keeping track of that, their scholarship money and they award it to, to different, either somebody else on the team is going to get more money or they're going to give it to a new player. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's always happening and it happens a lot at like the top 25 universities, like the, the schools where, guys are consistently going professionally 
Um, you know, they, they might, they might receive an offer for a homegrown contract or take an offer in Europe or get drafted early, like their junior year. And then all of a sudden, uh, that money opens up. So, uh, it just comes down to how that coach wants to award money and who they think is most deserving, you know, of that money. I'm sure there's dates where if you come in, you know, after a certain date, scholarship money can't be awarded after that. But I think that's probably on a case by case basis, you know, at each university. Uh, but it's definitely been done. I mean, you know, transfers are, are receiving scholarship money every day. I have a question about um, commitment. So if I verbally commit to a, a school, how, um, how committed am I? Yeah, I mean, a verbal commitment is, is that. It's kind of like a gentleman's word. Um, mm -hmm. You don't want to go back on it. Um, but, you know, nobody's going to make you do anything, you know. Like if you sign up and say you want to go to a school, uh, I think until the admissions paperwork goes through and you – um, you know, are, are signing, uh, you know, letters of intent and contracts and things like that. And, you know, officially enrolling in school uh, and start paying tuition and, you know, getting banks and things like that involved. And I don't think it's, it's too binding, you know, certainly not a verbal commitment. Uh, you hate to see anybody go back on a verbal commitment because you are giving somebody your word and, um, they, they player coaches will stop recruiting other players once they receive that verbal commitment because it is a commitment. So, uh, you hate to see that happen, but it's certainly been done and it's not something I would advise at all. You know, I would say once you make a, before you make the commitment, do your research, make sure that you're ready to, to give your word and then stick to your word. You know, it's a big part of life too. Yeah. Um, well, we do have questions from the audience. This one's from Fahim. Um, he's asking, realizing that the college soccer season is only a few weeks long, how can a student athlete maximize their potential and growth to match those European players who play 30 plus games a season? Yeah, so, you know, a college season is typically you're starting in August and it could go all the way through December, you know, so uh, I think that's another myth, right, where you, it's... Uh, I think the NCAA gets a, a bad name sometimes for not uh, offering enough training sessions and games to players. Um, but I'd say players are typically playing anywhere from, you know, 20 to 35 games a season, depending on how far they go, like in the, uh, in their conference tournaments and the NCAA tournament. Um, but most colleges are allowed 20 regular season games. Um, and then, you know, you're talking about at the Division One level, they're allowed five games in their spring season. And then their Division One and the Division Three level, they're only allowed one game in their spring season. And their Division One schools practice in the winter and spring, whereas Division Three schools can only practice for a couple weeks. So when you look at that, there are some restrictions on the NCAA where they have to give the players off and they can't offer training sessions and they can't offer games. And then the summer, you know, pretty much from finals week uh, all the way up until preseason, they're not allowed to have, you know, soccer contact with the players. The coaches are, are not allowed. So that's a big piece where players have to go out and they have to find teams to play for over the summer. And they really have to take their development seriously over the summer. Um, so when you compare like a, a European U19 team or U20, U21 team, which is that college age, they typically don't have this same, uh, you know, organization overseeing them that is restricting their soccer. That's where I think uh, the NCAA is certainly different. And, uh, you know, I can understand why a lot of people would be against it developmentally for the, for the athlete, you know, but the reason for that is that, the NCAA views people as student athletes. So students first and athletes second, even at the highest level, like even your, you know, uh, Alabama football team that's winning national championship after national championship or, you know, Stanford soccer or Georgetown soccer who just won the, uh, you know, division one men's national championship or North Carolina women's soccer, who's won, 
you know, 25 national championships, whatever it might be, they're still students. So, and as a, a player has to make that decision, do you want to be involved in a, in a college soccer team where there are restrictions or are you going to go off and develop some other way? So you got to know what you're getting into, but if you, if you're only allowed 20 games per season, you know, like I said, how much are you willing to go and find a team to play for over the summer? Are you willing to do that work? Are you going to own your development? If the soccer coach can work with you six days a week, what are you doing on the seventh day? If the college coach can't work with you from December to March, what are you doing on your own? Players have to take care, take control of their own development. And if they don't want to do that, then they don't want to be professionals and they don't want to, or, you know, they don't want to improve and they don't care to close that gap. So players know the answer to that. It's, it's just about if they want to work hard. Fantastic answer. Uh, there's another question uh, from Fahim again. Um, he's asking, what happens to classes missed while the team is on the road for a game or in season in general? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and um, some, some college teams will travel quite extensively. You know, they'll fly across the country. Uh, they'll stay, you know, uh, in hotels for three or four nights sometimes. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty big commitment. So uh, other teams will stay very regionally, you know, just within the same city even, um, and only travel, you know, a couple hours away, and there's never, like, any overnight trips or any classes missed. Um, so, again, you got to know, like, what you can handle as a student athlete. Can you handle being away from, away from school and away from that structure? But typically the, the coaches will work with the players and the athletic department will work with the, the players to give them letters to give to their coaches or, you know, automatic emails to go to those, those, uh, sorry, the, the, the teachers uh, to say, you know, Fahim is going to miss class on this day, this, and this day for soccer. This is, you know, here's the schedule. And coaches are pretty organized with that stuff to give the player a letter to say, here's our schedule this year. Here's what I'm playing. Here's what I've been projected to miss. I'm going to need help on these days. I'm going to need this to take this test on a different day. Um, and then they, they have to work hard on the road. You can still read a textbook and log into internet in your hotel, you know, like you're either going to let it be a barrier for you or you're not. Um, and I think everybody is seeing right now during this COVID thing that you can use the internet in so many different ways to go to school, to complete tasks, to hold meetings. Um, so there's really no excuse. And I think that's what this whole crisis is showing a lot of people. So um, it's working with the coaches and the community. It's still communication, right? Do you communicate to the teacher that you're going to miss? And are you, uh, are you proactive enough to follow up when you need help? So those big life skills that are that keep coming back. Yeah. And kind of like to tack on to that, um, I was friends with a D1 athlete at GW, the school I go to. Um, and if we had a class together, then he would just ask me for help. And so always look to reach out to your friends or anyone that you know in classes as well. And it's definitely a big help if you're missing class pretty often. Yeah, and it's, it's important to kind of go outside of your, your circle because if all of your friends are soccer players, you won't be able to ask them for help because they'll be with you on the bus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think, again, it's, it's – uh... I think it's knowing your, your limits. And I think that's the biggest thing with college is like all of a sudden you have this, you don't have mom and dad there, you're away from home and you have all this time in the world where, you know, people aren't always holding you accountable to get your work done. Um, and if you don't do it, there's consequences for it, you know, but uh, it's knowing who to hang out with. It's knowing how to manage your time. Uh, and a lot of these colleges, they have specific people that just work with the athletes, you know, to help their grades stay up. Uh, it's fantastic the amount of resources these college, colleges offer. When I was working at Ohio State, there was a building, a whole building dedicated just to student athletes for their academics, academic support, you know, computers, printers, uh, you know, every resource you can imagine tech, techno, uh, technologically, tutors available, you know, 12 to 15 hours a day to help them out, you know, just every resource you could imagine. 
every student athlete got a, you know, an iPad at Ohio State. So they, you know, there was no excuse for not being able to take that, that on the road with them or log in for something. So uh, it's incredible the resources these schools have and that are dedicated to helping the, the, the athlete be successful, not just athletically, but also academically. All right, so he's got one last question. Um, how is the transition from college to pro? Is it different if you're D2 or D3 compared to D1? How's the transition from college to pro? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think every time you go up a level, um, it becomes incredibly more challenging for the player. You know, there, there's a new set of challenges. Uh, the, the talent pool becomes that much uh, wider, you know, in terms of where the, the, the players are coming from and, uh, you know, where the scouts or the coaches are, you know, gaining interest from and who they have available to them. So I think it's so difficult to play uh, to go from playing at a local club to playing at an academy. It's so hard to go from playing at an academy to play in college. It's so hard to go from playing, you know, academy to a division three college. It's, it's even harder to go to a division one college the majority of the time. Uh, and then once you talk about everybody being in college, the percentage that actually make it and become professionals is uh, just, it's an incredibly small percentage. Um, so the transition, I don't think is the right focus, you know, like, I think the focus needs to be like, how do you even make it, you know, like, how do you, what does your game need to look like? What do your habits need to look like? How consistent do you need to be? How impactful do you have to be to even be considered to make it professionally? Uh, and then I think the transition becomes like any transition trans transitions are, are very difficult and players go from a lot of times being an impactful player, uh, a meaningful player to having to work their way up the ladder again and being, you know, the, the weakest on the field or the slowest on the field or the least impactful or the least tactically knowledgeable just because there's, they're being introduced to a whole new world. I also think professionally it becomes a, it becomes a player's livelihood and a player's job uh, to protect their position, you know, whereas there's a comfort level. If you're a good player at the youth level, there's a comfort level. If you're a good player at the college level where your position is pretty secure a lot of times. And if you get knocked off one day and you don't start a game, you know, you might take it personally, but it doesn't really mean a whole lot for a player, you know, like they'll bounce back the next game they might start uh, with the, with professionals. I think they're constantly looking at it as this is how I feed my family. This is how I make my living. Um, nobody's going to take my position from me. So when it, when it becomes, you know, that level, I think players are, are constantly um, they're, they're protective. You know, I think they train harder, they play harder, they take things personally uh, they want to sustain their college, their, their professional career, and they want to be pros as long as they can. So it's the transition becomes, how do you fight past that? Like, how do you, how do you compete with somebody who refuses to give their position up? It's, it's, it's an incredible, incredible uh, profession, you know? Those are all the questions. Um, Matthew, got anything? No, I mean, I, I think this is a really insightful uh, conversation. Um, a lot of information for, for players and their families to kind of sift through that they, that they may not have been familiar with before. No, I definitely appreciate the time from you guys and the, the, the questions from, from you guys and the players and families. It's, uh, uh, I think, again, it's the college soccer process specifically can be really difficult to, to navigate and, and understand. So I think just using the resources that are available to you from your parents to siblings to friends that may have gone to college to your high school guidance counselors and teachers uh, and the coaches that you're talking to in the process 
uh, I think can be incredible resources to you. The other thing that I hope sticks with everybody is just like the amount of scholarships and the, the types of scholarships that are available to players out there to continue to focus on those um, as you go through the, the college soccer recruiting process. But um, definitely appreciate the time. It was fun. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate everything. That was episode six. We're rolling on these rain talks. Our next, uh, our next conversation with a, a pro physio uh, from the MLS. Awesome. Um, good too. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. I should have our last graphic. Thanks, you, brother. <laughs> no problem. Awesome. Appreciate it, guys. All right. See you, everybody, next time. All right. Thanks.